someday I'm going to do this. Sometimes you have to set it down and walk away from it. Just to get off on a little bit of a tangent. If, if you don't care, if you don't mind looking at your hoarded stuff, that's cool. I've got to slow down and, and uh, not try to get ahead of myself on projects. Half the time, you don't even know what's right. If you're a real artist, you can hide your mistake. Let the paint dry in between steps. Don't rush it. You can adapt and you can cover it up. And hopefully for the better. You're listening to The Crossing Gate, the official podcast of the Twin Cities Division of the National Model Railroad Association. The topics and discussions are about the world's greatest hobby, model railroading. Here are your hosts, Thomas Gazier and Ken Zeska. This episode of The Crossing Gate is sponsored by the Gruesome Casket Kit. Do you have a fleet of 60-foot boxcars and no place to send them? Need an industry that can take those loads but have no space? No problem. Introducing Gruesome Casket, the one and only industry that can receive and ship innumerable car loads while taking up less than 10 square inches of layout space. This classic kit from the late 1960s is still being lovingly manufactured with the same oversized details of the original. Listen to what real model railroaders say about this kit. Mine's next to the pickle factory. I use 89-foot boxcars for mine. I created a company switcher assigned to gruesome caskets. Carved out of a real railroad tie. Mine is still not built, and it's somewhere under the layout in a trusty blue tub. I think. Easy to find at train shows. Too easy. Get yours today. Ask for it by name. You don't want any gruesome gasket. You want gruesome casket. Look for it at your local hobby shop, flea market, or maybe on the bottom of one of your blue tubs. Accept no substitutions. Get gruesome casket on your layout today. And welcome to another episode of the Crossing Gate podcast. Today we're going to talk about prototype modeling. And with me today is Mr. Eric Boone. Hello. Dave Hamilton. Howdy. Mike Jordan. Hello. We have William Sampson. Hello, hello. Joe Binish. Good evening. Larry Eggering. Hello there. And Ken Zeska. Hello, everybody. Well, it looks like Bill made eye contact there for a second. <laughs> All right, we'll, we'll go with Bill. <laughs> And we'll get right into it with Mr. William Sampson. Bill, welcome. Thank you very much. i got a good uh, crew together here. Talking about prototype modeling, I think one of the first things that I've really enjoyed about prototype modeling is the ability to weather towards the prototype. So if a person wants to weather a freight car and you just randomly start throwing chalk or paint or something on a freight car, it doesn't really aesthetically look quite right. But once you have a photo that you're sitting there looking at of that car and you start applying those weathering powders or, you know, solutions to the car, you can see that there's some browns. You can see that there's some blacks. You can see that there's some detail that you can start drawing into it, which I think as a prototype modeler starts to make it more believable. And our end goal, obviously, among all of us is to try to make it as believable as we can. 
And even if it's a proto freelance, it doesn't even have to be a prototype model that you're doing, but draw your inspiration from the prototype. And I really, I think it's a big part of it's in the weathering side of things, but you know, I know you guys all do a lot of weathering yourselves, but uh, even just prototype modeling, are there any of you that dial into some of those niche things that's in the prototype world that stand out that says, yeah, the prototype helps me in this application? I think that your point is really accurate. When you're using a prototype picture to weather or to create a scene that, that makes it, frankly, easier, but I think the outcome is better. If I try to just sit and think about what a car should look like weathered without having pictures there, I don't feel that I come up with a good a final product. And that's the same thing with scenes. You know, I look at scenes and it doesn't have to be the same exact building, but I look at how they weather and I notice that they get interesting little weathering patterns under some windows and, and uh, streaking where there's a pipe. And that just helps me finish the building so that it's more accurate and it, it feels better. I think copying the uh, the prototype can never go wrong. I have a very good friend that um, asked me to do a New York Central Bridge from outside of Albany, New York. He found this picture of this bridge, and there was no prototype, no model built for that. Okay, I was able to take bits of about five kits and then match it up because it was just a really strange bridge. It took me probably ten hours. He just was so ecstatic that he he remembered driving under that bridge. A hundred people walking in there will never know that that's a model of that bridge, but a hundred people leaving will know because he talks about it. So it is a big deal in a lot of ways to get that out, to have that one prototype scene. That's the only prototype model on his layout that's built around the New York Central. He's ecstatic about it, and I was happy to do it because... I had to find other pictures to make sure I got the width correct and all that. But it was great. It was fun. Uh, I agree with you. And I think that um, when you weather or build or paint, if you know, you, a boxcar, you take into account, you know, when it was built, when you're, what year you're modeling, what the lading has been, what the terrain that it's gone through. And, you know, all cars don't weather the same. You, you get two cars, the same, paint scheme and the same road and you send them different directions, you get them back a year later and they're completely different. So if you can take that into account, it really adds to your model and the, and the believability. Well, there's another good point. If you try to, I modeled the sixties. And if you compare, if somebody that models current day compares my weathering to theirs, they're going to say, I don't weather enough, but cars in the sixties weathered differently in the fifties and sort of buildings. Even to the color of the reds back in the 60s, they went to kind of a pink. The pigments weren't nearly as strong. And that's it kind of resonates as far as the uh, the era that you're trying to set. Now, my dad models 1970. So we have a flat car, a bulkhead that uh, was built in 1968, and it's big sky blue. And even after a couple of years, that faded to kind of a, a chalky blue. But I've got photos of it in the 80s, and the thing looks almost kind of dirty and black. The car has gone through even kind of a life cycle. It got lighter in color and then it got darker in color. And that's just the years of weathering that take place. And I think even to just real piggyback real quick off of uh, Larry talking about that bridge, it's iconic because it's something that they clearly had remembered and had saw as a, as a child. But one thing Dan Dosa did, even with his Nokomis mill, 
is that he truncated and shrank it down, but the thing still screams Nokomis. You can tell the textures, the way the building looks. And even as a modeler, you don't have to necessarily go one-to-one on something, but just get those flavors and get that feel that speak to whatever location you're trying to represent. Yeah. And to the point of weathering, you know, it's definitely different. You know, you had the, you know, like the seventy or the eighties, you kind of had the, the rust bucket, you know, weathering, which, you know, you never saw that in the older photos, I think maybe because they maintained the cars better. And then through the seventies, they kind of let it slip. And I don't think you see it as, I'm trying to think if you see it as much anymore, Tom, you'd probably be a better one to a- answer that question. Now you see it's the graffiti everywhere. But, uh, you don't see the total, I don't seem to see the total rust bucket cars running by anymore either. Yeah, the prototype doesn't have to paint them. They let all the, the guys line side do that. So <laughs> now Dave, you model the prototype, you modeled the queue. How has that helped nail down your layout and the cars and models? I haven't really done much weathering as such, you know, just some real light stuff on cars, but I just look at it from the trying to get the scenes right as far as bluffs and having some bluff scenery, because that's the part of the railroad that I'm doing. Place names are all prototypical. Some of the structures, you know, a couple of them actually look appropriate, you know, because I've taken photographs and tried to make them look like that, including like the town of East Dubuque, you know, where people that have, have actually recognized East Dubuque because of the kind of sleazy look I gave it when I built it. And that's the way it looked in the, you know, (laughs) prior in in my time period, like the Highway 20 bridge, it's easily recognizable where trains go in and out of the bluff that cuts across the Mississippi River. That's recognizable and prototypical. When you're in La Crosse, you know, I have a Heilemann Brewery and anybody that's ever gone to La Crosse knows that there was and there used to be a Heilemann Brewery. Now it's called City Brewing, but that's okay. You know, so I've tried to pick it up that way. So not so much with weathering, but just having appropriate existing businesses in the right places with the right names on it. So I think that would qualify as a a type of prototype modeling. Besides the fact that the, uh, you know, that the automobiles and the trucks are all right for the era, the paint jobs, you know, you don't see any you know, swish paint jobs going through the railroad. You know, it's all appropriate Burlington. And now since it's now 1970 in the basement, I do have a couple green and black locomotives. I just had to do that. So that's my version of prototype. The right stuff in the right place, the way the railroad would have had it. And I think it works. I mean, people seem to be comfortable with it. So so Mike Jordan, you're you're modeling off a prototype of Santa Maria and the SP. How much research did you do to make your layout have that feel? I actually did quite a bit, but most of it was given to me, so I didn't have to hunt for it. I heard about a gentleman that gave a speech about how to model the prototype. So when I contacted him, his whole presentation was uh, the Santa Maria Valley Railroad. So it was just like I went with in with a tablespoon, came out with a bucket. I ended up really too much information. Not only do you have to slightly compress your physical buildings and models, sometimes you just have to sort through the information you got, pick the cherries and leave the rest of it in the file just so that you can pull it out and show someone that this is how it really was. So, Mike, how did you decide and actually strip stuff down and say, this is what I'm going to keep? Because I feel like a lot of times you can get paralyzed with too much information. Space on the railroad. My layout room is 12 by 20. And, uh, you know, I just can't put every industry Mm -hmm. out there. I just picked the few that 
looked good or they were easy to model. I guess the biggest pat on the back I had is I met the current owner of the Santa Maria Valley Railroad, and I showed him some pictures of the buildings I built. He called out the industries just looking at the buildings. Now, they're not like Dan Doza's model of the grain. Yeah, yeah, the Nokomis Mill that's just so excellent. I captured enough of the flavor so people could recognize it. Uh, Alan McClellan, he had a thing that he said, good enough. That's what I try to get to is good enough. And then the other thing I realized is that I modeled the 50s and most of the railroad equipment was brand new in the 50s because all the old equipment was worn out from World War II. And then in the 50s, you didn't see the graffiti that's out there now. That makes it easy for me to model light weathering and no graffiti and I'm done. That is an interesting thing about the fifth. And like William brought up, are any of you the research, how much can you selectively compress and still convince people that you're modeling Dubuque, Minnesota, California, Michigan, the Hiawatha line? Because Mike's absolutely right. It's the size of your layout. With your eye on prototype modeling, how do you figure out, do you pick signature scenes from the prototype? Anyone do, does that on their layout? Well, Tom, there, there's a question I'd like to turn around on you because you're modeling iron ore railroading, which has a distinct size and mass and feel. How did you compress that and still get a feeling that was satisfactory to you? What was your borderline? I think my borderline was I could not depict the long trains of iron ore because of the size of my layout. I couldn't have a 120 car ore train. I have to convince my operators and visitors that they're in ore country, that they're in northern Minnesota. So I put pine trees and birch trees. That's all I have. I have the noises of the Northwoods with loons. I've got a fire watch tower. I have an accurate national park sign. And the smaller town, the town, only town on my layout has no buildings that are that are three stories even. How I try and create the prototype without these long ore trains and this huge open pit mine is I'm just going to convince you that you're in that area. How, how long an ore train do you run, Tom? 20 cars. When your train is on the main line, how many places do you have where you can see all 20 cars at one time? None. None until it gets to the yard. And that was that was by design, too. If you follow your train around, that you just go from scenic element to scenic element to scenic element around my no-licks. And each scene just makes you feel that you're in a different part north of Duluth above Lake Superior. And that's where I think you really do well with that, Tom, is that you actually kind of create vignettes that allow an operator to kind of go into an area and enjoy a scene and not feel like it's this, I'm overlooking this city or this world as if you're Godzilla looking at, you know, a railroad, you can kind of dive in and you cut even a little opening in the side of your railroad that shows basically just a little stretch of track. And that really has set up in such a way from a prototype viewer standpoint, you're rail fanning on your railroad because you kind of set up little rail fan spots. And I think that's pretty cool. Uh, Yeah, that was the point I was trying to to tease out of him, uh, Will, I, I, I think that he has created the prototype look in a compressed space by creating prototype vignettes rather than a massive, long, boxcar red snake filled with red dirt. Yeah, it's, t- it's tough to do if you model, you know, Dave Hamilton, you've done it well with the CB&Q along the bluff. You don't have 120 yeah. miles along the Mississippi River, but 
you get the feel of it because of the background and your train meanders through this. And this is like, I think William brought up is like, do you feel you get paralyzed by modeling the prototype that you have to get all this information and you have to have it out there? Does that affect anyone? The paralysis by analysis? Okay. With, with my planning right now, I've actually been able to, you know, I'm modeling the Paramarquette in 1946, you know, so it area that I'm very familiar with because it's basically, you know, the line from two towns, I drove, you know, state highway parallel the, the line for most of the way. I've driven down it, I don't even know how many times. Obviously, the only difference for me is it's going back to a time well before I was born. So there's a lot of research there that, and I, I just have to realize myself, I'm never going to know everything. I found a lot, you know, Sanborn maps, aerial photos from 1946, you know, so one year after the year I'm modeling, oh, you know, official register of equipment, of railway O-R-E-R, <laughs> the, the, the big book of every freight, you know, car that every railroad had from, again, a few months from when the time I'm modeling and a lot of great stuff, but I'm never going to be able to find it all. I guess one thing that's driven me is, you know, kind of going back to the whole length of trains and stuff and operating. Like, I do want to have a lot of space between my towns. So I'm not trying to cram. You know, I'm trying to get a lot of mainline in by going Nolix design. You get a lot of mainline in with multiple decks, but I'm not modeling a long distance. So I can take all my towns and spread them out. And then I don't have to do as much selective compression. The industries that are there, for the most part, I can fit in. Now, they'll be compressed, obviously. That's just the nature of model railroading. But I should be able to get most all of them in, except for maybe in some very few couple really crowded areas. You know, for me, I like history. I like the research. So that's part of the fun for me. Well, that was, I was going to ask you, Eric, though, is, is a guy, and for anybody who can't see Eric in terms of his age, but you, I'd consider you a younger modeler like myself. Why 1946? I, I can understand Mike, 1950s. Yeah. He might have been there in the 50s. <laughs> might have? <laughs> <laughs> but what, well, what draws a younger guy like yourself to go for 1946 as a prototype modeler? A couple things for in my particular case. In 1947, the Paramarquette merged with the Chesapeake and Ohio. So part of it was, hey, I wanted to be a little bit unique and step back. And the other is, I love steam locomotives. They're just so interesting for me. You know, all the action is on the outside. And in 1946, the railroad was predominantly steam. By 1951, it was gone. Chesapeake and Ohio, at that by that point, in Michigan dieselized very quickly because of course gm their biggest customer or one of their biggest customers is right there and then you know they moved all the steam and kept it longer down in you know in in coal land in virginia and west virginia and the like you know i, I picked that year because i like steam i love history was still an independent of sorts railroad dave were you gonna say something on that or i mean i know my limitations both with space and mentally, I like to read about the stuff. I love looking at pictures from my era. I try to be realistic. At some point, I'm not going to make it the exact railroad that it was in 1970 in the exact area with every little feature. So, you know, and again, it, this is where it's real personal for everybody in here that you know what you can do. Don't try to overdo it and do what you're comfortable with. If you pick up some more information from reading a book about the, you know, the operations going to Winona, for instance, try to work some of it in. I'm not going to let myself get overwhelmed with this stuff and turn into some kind of a fanatic. Not that there's anything wrong with that. No. But, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to live forever. I've got a big basement and I'm thinking I'm doing a pretty decent job with it as it is. 
and I'm happy with it. If I learn something new, maybe I can work it in. If not, it's fine the way it is. I think you have to know your limitations, period. And that's not a derogatory thing. You know, that's what paralyzes guys and they never get past, you know, saying, oh, here's my track plan that I'm going to try to build in 28 years when I retire. Oh, I'm going to change this track plan and use this track plan, but I'm going to buy 400 more freight cars. No, I like this plan better. It's like, that's where I get all worked up about this. Just do something and find out what you can do and do it. And if it doesn't work because you know too much, then try doing something else. Don't let yourself get paralyzed thinking that, well, the prototype had a 30 degree turn to the right next to this water tower. Well, guess what? Your basement isn't going to work. Your space isn't going to work. Make it go to the left. No one will even notice for the most part. Mine even changes directions at some point. East is west and west is east because I had to cross over the main line at some point in the railroad. So I put signs up, you know, the sign. <laughs> it's like my geography bender. So I, I even can bend the directions of the Earth's rotation. But it works. At least you know where you're going. Boy, that's so, a slick tool. Yeah, Micromart should sell that. So <laughs> nah, I'm gonna I want to go to Joe. Knowing so much about the prototype and knowing so much, even about like rolling stock and models, does it? I, I don't know if the word is bother, but when you see other people say, "Oh, I'm I'm trying to model the you know the MNCL and this is my era," and they've just got everything off the shelf, do you want to help them or say, "Here's what you could do to pull off the MNCL," you know, better? Yeah, that's in that case. If it's going to be for example, the M and St. L. Okay, looks great. It's a nice car. You did a good job on it. However, there here are some things you can do. Here, I'll give you the superior brake that these, you know, cars all had. It's going to make it say more M and St. L more. And to me, that's the fun part is figuring that kind of stuff out for whatever railroad, getting the correct color paint. And I know that's a rabbit hole we can fight about. And then seeing how the cars weathered and and you know what the the different details were that's what i find enjoyable so if you know if someone wants to go down that rabbit hole with me great let's go but if they don't okay great i can work around that you know for operating it's just like playing so i don't need to be you know i'm i'm playing in some with someone else's toys or in their sandbox so i'm not going to kick sand in their face mike how does this affect in you at all with the prototype like you said you brought up the 50s and that way you get to have cleaner cars than the rest of us what other things have has been an advantage to modeling a prototype? I have to go go along with Eric. You know, when people say model railroading, you know, they think you you're putting together a kit. But model railroading is uh, the research and finding out little things that on operation or what they actually shipped or how they shipped it. It doesn't go on the layout. But it's just interesting to discover some of this stuff. And then, you know, at some point, that information comes back and it does get modeled either physically or in the operation part of the railroad. That's the benefit of operating prototypically on your railroad is that information that you think is worthless yesterday is you know something you need today and it, it's just uh, someone oh larry's talking about the bridge well when you do something and someone notices it on your railroad uh, you get to to tell people about your knowledge so we all want to be that expert that can tell someone that they don't know so i guess that's 
a definition of being an expert is being able to tell someone that doesn't know the information, the information you know, and then that makes you an expert. That's an evolving process, I think. I mean, I find like a lot of times, like this group of uh, modelers that we're talking to right now have all brought information to me. Uh, I was updating a switch list for my railroad and I wanted it more prototypical. Mike talked about how he had reefers and he had to open a reefer and let them dry out and go through the process of getting those things through an industry. So I've got an elevator that I've got a flower car that comes in and you say, well, the flower car comes in dirty. It's got to get clean. So it goes into a wash rack and then it goes into the loading facility after it's been washed and then it gets loaded with flour and then it goes, you know, offline. But how do you get? Those, you know, those type of moves without either talking to somebody that works at a mill or is familiar with those operations. And this is all information that I think we kind of slowly all kind of gather as we go along and we start kind of adding pieces to it. Because I know I was not concerned about a clean or a dirty air slide at all at my elevators. I, I didn't have an interest in it. Well, then you start talking to guys about it and say, well, the railroad would have done this. It's like, okay, well, that's a cool little element to add. And you start adding that stuff in and it does bring, and I think in a lot of cases that ends up being more of a nuance than the nuisance. Some of the nuisances that can come up, you can look at it and say, okay, a lot of the heavy paperwork and a lot of the reading that might be on a prototype, you know, manifest or a waybill, you look at it and go, I don't need all that information. We can delete that and use just the information we need. But then to you guys as kind of even a whole across the board, you know, I know even on my dad's case, we're starting to put signaling and I know that can be a little bit of a, a nail biting subject for some people. But when you start getting into that type of modeling, Larry, I want to direct this even maybe a little bit more towards you is as a modeler, do you find the electronics and a lot of these components that are coming out, whether they're the BDL 168s, and we don't want to get too deep in the weeds with stuff that's out there, but do you find that the electronics and the stuff that's coming onto the market is helping improve and making things more prototypical? Oh, definitely. It was 2009, no, 2007. I did a single mainline layout that guy wanted bi-directional signaling, okay? 19 boards because they were all transistor logic. And Ouch. <laughs> I still have them. They were the circuitron boards. I don't know if any of you guys remember those. And they had, and you know, you'd have to run four wires to the board before it and four wires to the board ahead of it. Yep. And all of a sudden, you got a, you know, it took me six months. I sat down literally in an hour and a half with a new Arduino um, CMRI connection that I made, okay, this weekend. And created the same bi-directional signaling running two wires to three Arduinos and then running the signals to those Arduinos. I did it all on the bench in an hour and a half, which means I could probably do it on the layout in a day, maybe at two, instead of months and months. Because then you, you've got to get the logic in your head on this wire goes here. Now, the electronics has it to the point where JMRI or railroad and company or whichever one you, whichever flavor you choose has done all that heavy lifting. So you're saying I need this to go here, but you're just clicking two mouse buttons, two radials on a, on a program. So it is a huge difference. The other thing Tom kind of casually mentioned that leads people to realizing you're in a prototype is the sound. The loons, when he asked me to do the loons, I had no idea you know, I'd already done loons. It was more as a joke. 
Yeah. All of a sudden, Tom's, <laughs> this sounds like the backyard. <laughs> you know, that element, every element can add to your prototype. For instance, cicadas. Ralph de Blasi asked me to do New Jersey cicadas. I had to find a recording of it. More research of the prototype. Is it a subtle nuance? Yes, because they only show up, what, every 16 or 20 years, right? Every aspect of that. I got caught up in the minutiae of that bridge. 15 pictures of it and a, finding a drawing of a standard New York Central Bridge and then figuring out how long this one really is. And you get caught up in all that. In the end, it says New York Central, and he can say, this is a model of this bridge. I could have done it simpler, but we all get caught up in that. Yeah, this your prototype sounds... Out. Larry, those prototypes sounds like you said Ralph wanted the cicadas. I wanted the loons. You know, if you made the sound of a, a mill, a grain mill, it's going to sound the same in Texas as it does in Maine. Exactly. But, but if you're going to model Florida or Texas or something, you're, you're kind of want, you want those sound. And I think that's something that prototype, you're really nailing down the prototype to do that. And I think that's something you cool that you do well, that's really neat. And the electronics adds to that, because let's say that, you only want this the loons to go off every eight minutes. It is so simple now to take an Arduino and an MP3 player in a recording, a, say a 20-second recording of Cicada, and just tell the Arduino. And it takes almost, I mean, almost anybody can do this without a lot of effort because there's so much code out there to say, do this every 20 minutes. And it'll just play. It used to be 20 years ago when we wanted a sound like that. If we wanted to play every 20 minutes, it was dependent upon the finger, right? You had to push a button and or start the cassette. Remember that? Yeah, the electronics in every aspect of running the railroad Proto throttles. Think about that. What a huge difference the proto throttles are. It's like you're sitting there with a control stand in your hand. And that changes the pace, though. The proto throttles change the pace of how you're operating. And that, I think, is also something that prototypically we're slowing down our operations more than slot carring where we move fast. Yeah. I, I mean, like you say, you, you think about it, something as simple as a proto throttle, it literally changes the aesthetics of what's going on on the railroad because the actual device you're holding is controlling those speeds and putting that momentum in that we a lot of times with the dial aren't doing. Those are a lot of good points, Larry. I tell you, you got a, a plethora of information <laughs> when it comes to electronics. I'm impressed. <laughs> I, I just want a steam proto throttle. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. coming. Apparently, it's coming. Oh, awesome. Uh, the one thing that got me, and Tom will appreciate this, is one of the operating sessions I went to early on, my conductor was an actual engineer. So I was picking it up, running it out, and he's like, uh-uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> they don't move that quick. <laughs> and I wasn't driving them fast. I would couple and go. And he's like, oh, no, no, no. You got to hook up the hoses. You got to pump them up, and then you can go. And he slowed me down, and I had so much more fun. Again, that leads you into the prototype. What you know, the models are part of it, but when you get somebody in there that doesn't understand it, and you can sit down and talk to them and say, in the real world, the trains do this, and that's why we do this. The stranger, then it becomes not about running a train under a Christmas tree. They're starting to understand what the trains do in real life. Exactly. There's more to it than just, like you say, around a Christmas tree or in a circle or even on a prototype front. You know, Tom, do you find 
you know, being an engineer that you see actual practices falling into your your modeling of sorts, or even when you're running on your own railroad? Very much. Not the actual operations, but looking at the track, track side, the debris, what's 50 feet from the center line of basically any railroad and what does the middle of the track look and so forth. Yeah, that that has helped me, as you said, nail down or screw, screw down some scenes, my rip tracks, my material yards, the ties I have spaced along the right-of-way and the disturbed ties and things like that are very much from prototype research. With the technology, now, Eric, I want to go to you too, is do you feel with our technology, with this 3D printing, you can actually get the prototype cars you want? And I was going to ask other people this, Dave Dave mm-hmm. Hamilton too, is prototype modeling, the more you learn, the more you trade in your Atherton blue boxes and you go get the tangent or Joe Binnish, you go build the, you know, the resin cars or like Eric, you design them and print them. Is this a result of prototype modeling? Sure. I think so. Yeah. I mean, definitely. I was, you know, I have for my railroad, I have a list of every freight car they had in the time. And I look and say, you know, I'm looking through the Pier Market Historical Society has a list of, you know, a modeler's guide where they have a list of all the kits that are available. You know, there are a lot of nice kits and good things there for some of them, but there's a lot of them there was nothing. So I kind of looked through the list and said, oh, there's no kit for that one. There was a lot of them though. So I said, okay, I'm going to draw that one. It's been interesting and, you know, it's the start and pretty soon I'll start making variations because there were variations of that car and, and then expand on to the next one. The next one, I've got, I've got a caboose half drawn. I just got to get a chance to get back to it, to finish it up and try printing that. But really kind of from the prototype modeling standpoint, it keeps, and, and I'm, I'm not alone on this front. When you go to the flea market or the hobby shop, it keeps you from going, ooh, that's really cool. Ooh, I like that. Ooh, I like that. So it saves me money there because I very much uh, avoid the impulse buy um, because, oh, you know, that wasn't, wouldn't have been around at my time, so I'm not going to buy it. It's definitely sold me down there. But then, of course, on the opposite end, you know, there's things that there's no models for, um, you know, particularly in steam locomotives. There's uh, a lot of the earlier steam before the USRA came along where there's really nothing available. So, you know, I'm excited for the 3D printing because I'm going to get there at some point. You know, there's only so much time in my life right now, but at some point, yep, I'm going to model up some of them steam locomotives that there really is no kit, and I'm going to start, you know, printing them and and make a lathe and something like that so I can turn some wheels and and different things like that. That's a future goal for me. Hey, Eric, I have a uh, the drawings for the MNCNL 282s. I'll send them over. You can print me up some boilers quick. (laughs) It's the modeling time that's the challenge there. Yeah, Yeah, I know. I'm just teasing. Yeah, I'm teasing. No, the the prototype modeling is very, I don't know, freeing or liberating or whatever you want to say, because like Eric alluded to, you go to the hobby shop or the flea market. Yep. I don't need that car. That car never existed. You know, 1953 is my cutoff. So nothing exists before that. And then it allows you to look at the OER, OREs and say, yep, I need this car. And most of the cars moved in accordance with the National Freight Car Fleet. So you can, if you really want to, figure out what the percentages are for that particular car and how many fruit growers reefers and how many Burlington route reefers and on and on and on. What's an ORER? Oh. <laughs> Official Railway Equipment Register. Ah. That's what I was trying to think of before. I didn't quite get it 
get it right. But, you know, like I said, I have the one from January of 1947, which is basically the end of the year for what I'm modeling. So that's going to be pretty good. (laughs) And that can be kind of a rabbit hole too. I mean, the information in those ORERs, I actually got a copy of the M&S sheet from 1946 from Eric. And this information is basically just being extracted. And I've gone through now from 1950 up to 1991. And I've got a snippet of the M&S all the way through that time. And you sit there and you look at it and you say, well, why would you even care about all the information from all those years across the board? Well, part of it is, is when did it come online? How long did they have them? And a lot of the stuff lasted into the 90s. And you say, well, you know, from a freight car's life and history, that type of information is valuable when you start diving into the details. Now, if you start diving into the details even deeper, we can talk about brass models that are out. There are so many manufacturers that are making these nice models. And as that time has happened, one of the experiences that I've had is that a 4180 air slide came out from Tangent. It was a two-bay air slide. You think, oh, it's just a two-bay air slide. Walther's made them. Well, that was a lot nicer car than the Walther's car that was out there. And that started this whole process of we started pulling those two bay air slides off and starting to put the tangents on. And as that then started to evolve, you started seeing other cars that didn't have that detail. But as the models and manufacturers, we keep kind of raising this prototype. I don't know if you want to call it a draw bar or, uh, you know, what type of rivet counting level that we're at. But do you guys see yourselves in that position? Are you looking at, you know, whether it might even be brass or even the tangent models that are out there? Are you changing one-to-one the cars that are on your railroad or are you sitting there picking up a new car and just saying, you know, the new car is replacing something or is it just going to be your new car that you just bought? I have both, but I even have some of those blueprint models with the 937 pieces for a boxcar. 800 of them break as you're putting them in, you know, (laughs) but I've also hyper detailed blue box cars. You know what I mean? Because it fits what I need. But I have a customer that has tangents, and he loves them, and they're hyper-detailed and all that. And then he has a blue box he hasn't touched, and he said, you know what? At a scale 30 miles per hour, I can't tell the difference. And I said, well, there is that. <laughs> you know, but you're not going to submit that to a model railroad or a Rick Craftsman or, you know, Narrow Gauge Gazette or anything like that. You're just not going to submit a picture of that blue box car. Although I might, but you know. Well, I think a lot of times too, is that detail, you can say that it goes by at the scale 30 miles an hour that it gets missed. But do you guys, even when you're operating other people's railroads, are you intimidated by some of those highly detailed cars? Cause you're using a pick and you might knock off a a draw bar or whatever it might be. Is there an intimidation factor there? I'll comment, you know, Joe's cars are immensely detailed and um, you know, he's kind of opinion that, hey, you know, I'm operating, it's going to happen sometimes. That's just a trade-off he's willing to make. And of course, we all do try to be very careful. Um, I don't think I've accidentally bumped anything off at his layout so far, but I I found a few pieces on the the track. So, But if you go into it, you know, as a modeler, a layout owner, and, you know, and I'm going to do the same thing. I want to have that similar level of detail, but but I am going to go into it knowing that, hey, you know, things are going to get bumped, things are going to break, and you know, that's a trade-off that I'm willing to make and, you know, much like Joe has. And I, I hope to go forward with that same attitude. Well, and I like that, Joe, you're very open to saying if something happens, Tom, you've done the same. Actually, all you guys have. If something does break, tell me, hand me the part so I can put it back on instead of just setting it on the very edge of the railroad or on a shelf 
and then walking on and, you know, or leaving it on the track side. <laughs> I, I love how Joe goes, oh, yeah, that's from that CNO boxcar number 572. He just kind of knows his car so well that it's like, oh, wow. <laughs> well, the problem now is I have a black end walk that was on 4th Street. And it's sitting on a loading dock, and I can't find the car it came from. Uh oh. <laughs> yeah. So it'll you know come means, across. Joe, they stole the car. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't yeah. notice anybody walking out with a bulge in their pants when they left. So Northeast oh. Minneapolis is getting a little rough. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Pro tip: If you're going to steal the car, steal the car card. Yeah. yeah. Right. I've heard that from a friend. I don't know uh-huh. anything about that. <laughs> not, uh, not that, yeah, not that our friends would ever steal a no, car. No. <laughs> my mine don't even don't even steal them. They just say, "Dude, I'm taking this." <laughs> okay. Well, Mike or Ken, you guys using any uh, prototype practices that help your operations? Have you found that that's added to it that you've dug down even more in your research? I think maybe what I wanted to ask was, we'll go around: is what bit of prototype information have any of you found out that really changed your modeling or your layout or your operations? And I'll give you my example. I found out that the iron ore that they dig out of the ground is blended, that there's more than one type. And through my rabbit hole, I found almost 165 types of ore. And when they drag these down, they blend them in the bottom of the ore boats that they load in Lake Superior and go off to the steel mill. And that created switching. And I didn't know how much they did this. And the more I dig, I keep finding photos of Sioux Line, Northern Pacific, Great Northern Cars on the Masabi. Masabi cars going to the Great Northern. You know, all these things like that. They actually interchanged entire trains to fill a boat with the correct consistency of iron ore to ship to the Laughlin steel mill. It's just, it blew my mind. I, I always thought it was red dirt. So so that's kind of an interesting thing that I'm now trying to model from the guys at the mine sampling the ore till it gets down to the dock and it's graded. And then you have to load the boat with that. You need a shirt that says it's just red dirt. It's just red dirt. Yeah. Grog hauls red <laughs> dirt. What piece of information have you dug up that has been like, wow, this is this is going to be a changer? Your ore operation, John Two's had a great system of uh, yeah. balancing different types of red dirt into his ore cars. Yeah, he's the godfather. He taught Mike Sophie and Mike Sophie yeah. taught me. So yeah. that's <laughs> that's what I was alluding to. Yep. But Mike like when your thing with the ice when you found out how much ice and salt and what they had to do to the car, wasn't that an eye opener instead of spot the orange reefer in front of the sunkiss plant next session we pull it. Yeah. I mean well, what, it, what was the information that you found? It was kind of a evolving thing. I noticed that people were doing coal or iron ore. And I thought, well, what if you moved refrigerator cars with the same process that ore and coal is moved? So I started collecting uh, every different type of refrigerator car I could find. And not one was the same. And then I had an operator come over and he said, nope. He says, you'd have nothing but PFE reefers, and they'd all be the same. You need to get rid of all this mismatch of reefer cars. So I did, and then people started talking to me about refrigerator cars, and then they introduced me to Tony Thompson's refrigerator car book, and that has been my Bible, I guess. And so that's the basis of all my refrigerator movements is Tony Thompson. You know, from that, you pick up little nuggets here and there. 
I think just learning about that car movement. In an article, they said that refrigerator cars from where they were marshaled to when they were finally filled, the average mile was 84 miles per car. So you just think of all the movements of uh, clean out, icing, storage. Some of these cars, they might move 100 miles in one night just to get to a packing shed to be loaded. The coordination of all that stuff is just mind-boggling. To think that it was a clerk with a flimsy piece of paper that moved those cars. It's just, so I think that's just those nuggets of uh, how they move cars. And I think finding Tony Thompson's book was the number one change for how I, my prototype movements. You're talking about that book previously. It was inspiration for me to go ahead and pick up the pickle industry book, you know, the pickle and vinegar <laughs> industry of the Midwest. <laughs> I, thought it, I cruised oh, through no. it and looked at a lot of the pictures, but I haven't oh. really read it yet. Is there a gruesome <laughs> casket book? Yeah. I, don't know. Okay. I was just going to say, is there a gruesome casket book? I'll, I'll have to find right. the mortuary industry yeah. book or something. Yeah. Hey, we'll talk about that later. Ken, we'll go to Ken Zeska next. Is there any bit of information that you gleaned that has changed how you model or how you operate? Oh, gosh. I learned something every day. I stopped over and dropped some pieces off with William today, and, and we were just talking about clean out and wash out tracks. And we were talking about how things move back and forth. And, and it's always, oh, wow, that's that's neat. And, and it's stuff that you can add in and subtract out because we talk about sometimes you're doing things and people think you're just throwing stuff at them to drive them crazy, which is not the case. So yeah, I, and, and that's really the fun about listening to different podcasts, visiting people. It'll be fun when we can if we can start uh, visiting layouts again and, and operating on different layouts, it'll certainly, uh, I'll certainly take a different point of view when I go in to try to not just learn how to operate, but to understand how the layout owner envisions the environment of his layout. What's the story behind it? So that I can immerse myself, not just in moving cars, but in, in operating a, a scale model railroad. But now on that, Ken, take me back just to, as we spoke today, um, you, t- you talked briefly about going offline, going off the radio and tell that little bit of a story. Cause I thought that's what was interesting, even kind of about what you're doing with your railroad. Sure. I have a branch line and it, uh, it goes on the uh, shared rails till it hits uh, Heartland Junction. And then it goes off onto its, the old short line radio. And I, and I say in the story, for the people that, that are going to run that, when you get off of the joint rails, they turn off their train radio because nobody's going to talk to them anyway. And now they're going to turn on CCO because they're going to listen to the twins play. And uh, just give them an idea that they're they're going out, they're out in western Minnesota, they're on their own. I tell them that if the train stops, it's because it's hunting season and the head-end brakeman's on the on the front of the engine because they've been dropping corn and there's pheasants all over the railroad tracks. So maybe they'll stop and they'll shoot a couple of pheasants and stop and pick them up. And I don't want them to necessarily replicate that in the operation. I just want them to know that when you're out here, you're not on a timetable. You've got work to do. When you're in small town, Minnesota, you probably know everybody. It's it's a lot different than if you were running the Empire Builder. That was the story we were sharing. You know, sitting with them in the diner and for breakfast. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yet uh, I happened to pick up a pamphlet that the Northern Pacific put out in the mid-60s. 
and it talks about their fast freights to the West Coast. And they talk about the fact that, that this fast freight has got an exacting timetable to meet in all these different communities along the way. And I know more of the backstory about that, about that but for instance, the CB&Q would run uh, two trains a day that would come out of Chicago, and they had to be up here into the Twin Cities so that they could drop, make a connection with the NP and the GN at very specific times, and then they would head west from there. Then the uh, both railroads would have very specific times to, to meet. So that's a fun thing to put into some prototype operation because then you can uh, you, you get a sense of the, the fact that you're part of a big transportation and uh, a big logistics system. Those are the different philosophies and the different environments that you're operating in. But I'd like to share that with people. We all, when we're no matter how prototype modeler you claim to be, if you're doing more than just doing one train car a year, if you're trying to run a operate a layout, you are making compromises. I think that's important for us to realize. And so when you're operating, there's no reason not to make those same. You want it to feel prototypical, but realize that you're not going to go 110 miles. All right. So. Dave, anything? We'll go to Dave here. We're going to wrap this up because we're running on our time here, Will. So, Dave, anything that you've learned on prototype that changed oh, t- how you model, or what? What's the one nugget? Well, everybody, if we can stick to one nugget here. <laughs> Geez, Adam, there's been so many little things that I've tried to pick up on or incorporate, you know, and I can't, I can't honestly say that any one thing was a game changer. But like I had mentioned before, the the interchange activities and some special. Maybe it, it touches on what Ken said. I found out at a at a convention clinic one time that the Illinois Central used to drop off cars loaded with bananas in East Dubuque so that the people in the Twin Cities could get bananas, you know, and that was in the 50s and 60s. And they had Illinois Central actually had dedicated banana reefers. So naturally, I found a couple and I try to run them, you know, and just and they, they just show up in East Dubuque when I stage the train and there are special car cards. Because yeah, I'm still using car cards. They're picked up by a train, you know, going west that ends up in Minneapolis and St. Paul. And that's where we got our bananas. But obviously that changed with the trucking industry and everything. But so that was a, a little tiny nugget. Maybe that's more of a tidbit. Little things like that that add up, you know, and that's how I've always looked at it. Picking, oh, or here's another thing. I didn't realize that the Burlington actually had a freight house in Dubuque, Iowa, until I saw a picture of the freight house. And I saw a picture of a switcher going over the bridge that goes over the Mississippi River. So that's exactly what I do. You know, I bring cars over now from Dubuque, which doesn't exist, and drop them in East Dubuque so they can get picked up by the various trains that are going through Dubuque. Again, that's just a little tidbit as opposed to a nugget, but it all adds up to making things a little bit more realistic. We'll have so. to come up with model rarity and sizes, tidbit, nugget, chunk, something like that. <laughs> yeah, know. there you go. That That's um, a rabbit hole. We'll go to Eric. Any Anything you learned that was eye-opening or going to affect how your model? I mean, like I said, right now I'm mainly in the research stage. Like I said, mentioned before, the aerial photographs have been, you know, just awesome because, hey, this right along the track that I'm modeling, there's a state highway. And in that time frame, they were turning it from a, you know, two lane, one lane each direction into a divided, you know, 
boulevard type highway. And so I learned right from the aerial photographs, well, that's the part that they had finished in the year I'm modeling. So yeah, the, I mean, the, some of the research stuff, the aerial photographs, the Sanborn maps, all that stuff that's more and more available to us now because of the internet has just been a huge, huge plus. We'll go to Joe. Well, the thing that affected my modeling the most was just to, the realization that it's not just a train going around a Christmas tree, but it's like Ken said, part of a logistical system. So you, it helps me to think that way that, you know, this Canadian national box car is down here for a reason next mm-hmm. to a Sioux line box car, next to a an M and St. L car next to a CNW box car. And they're all in the same train, you know, going somewhere, but they're doing something and they're going somewhere after their, their work is done here. So that that's what helps me. So Larry, what have you found out from information that helped you with modeling or changed the way you look at things? We don't talk about it much, but my layout is fictitious and built around a whole bunch of jokes. The interesting thing is my friends and I that developed it are prototype modelers. We came up with all these strange products, okay? But we went into the research of if we were going to build this, what would we need for it? Do we need a special liquid? Okay, then they, then you have to have a tank car. What kind of tank car do you think it would be? And I mean, all of this, and we sat down and literally drinking coffee, laughing ourselves half silly, came up with all of this. That follows a prototype too. You know what I mean? Because it's this is what you need to do to make that work. How did we learn that? We researched the real thing or the products that were close to it. So that was the big impact on me is all of the things you don't think about. You know, how are guitars made, for instance? Okay, they got to get wood. Well, all right, how many kinds of wood? Where does that come from? You can go down that big rabbit hole. So that's where my impact was. So even in freelancing, which some of us do proto-freelancing, you can apply the prototype practices. So I like that. Yeah, if, it's, if this is a mythical company, they still need power and they need crates and they need, you know, food or substance. I like that. I like that, that you're putting, applying that to even the ABC box company or the Schnossage brothers or something like that. Right. That's classic. And William, what have you found out in your uh, research? I think the biggest thing that I've found that has changed the way I've been doing the modeling has been assignment of cars. I didn't realize that cars were specifically assigned to, like, I'm talking a number. Just as an example, the MNS had, uh, it was number, what is it here, Del Monte. So that was the product. But MNS 579 to 581, Rochelle, Illinois, transferring with the BN in Milwaukee. And that's an M or it's an M and S car that's being handled, and it's specifically that number series is targeted to Del Monte. So that's what they're hauling. So if I've got a transfer with the BN or the Milwaukee, and I've got that number, you know, five seventy nine or five to five eighty one, one of those cars, that's going to be going through that transfer. Now that's what I find interesting. I saw M and S nine thousand is at the Multo Meal plant, and to find that that's where that car spent its life. And you start mm-hmm. to find this information. I thought, yeah. boy, that that to me is interesting. And that's what has changed how I'm doing car movements and road names and who's transferring. But that information, I mean, it comes from prototype modelers. This application, it came from a local M&S modeler that just said, hey, here's a sheet from 1982 of every car they had and what they were assigned to. And that, to me, changed how cars were handled and where they were going. Yeah, I, I've had that chat with Dan Dosa because he was worried on his smaller layout that you'd see the same cars showing up at this industry. 
And I told him on the prototype, I said, we see the same cars all the time. I can look at a group of cars or a train and tell you where it's going. Sure. I know I know those box cars are carrying salt. I know those have paper and they're going to the Pioneer Press. And I know those cars are going to Hawkins Chemical. You see the same cars over and over. So learning those pools, you know, Greg Dahl with the beer cars, the railroads would supply cars to that pool. That's a really great thing. Well, guys, I think we'll wrap it up. We had a good discussion on the advantages of prototype modeling, how to apply it, how to use it to better your modeling experience. Anyone got any final words before we say goodbye? No, go ahead, Ken. If you've enjoyed this podcast, uh, please like it. Don't hesitate to give it a thumbs up and a review because we like other people to know about this podcast. And if you do that, you feed that old algorithm and then other people will be able to find us. Don't hesitate to, to give us a thumbs up and a review. And if you didn't like it, at least tell mm. us what you didn't like. <laughs> yeah, and tell us what you don't like. Several names. Yeah. 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 <laughs> they all can't be Joe. Well, anyways, so. Yep. All right, guys. Thank you. Everyone say goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. 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 podcast of the Twin Cities Division. You can find us on Facebook in our group, the Twin Cities Division of the NMRA. You can email us at tcdnmra at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and don't forget to subscribe for future podcasts.